Hello and welcome to the OGV podcast. This is Andy Mackay and I will be your host for today. I have the privilege of being joined by Matt Blair, who is the chairman for JNS Subsea. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hi, Andy. Doing very well. Thanks for having us here and giving us the chance to have a chat. Doing well. Thank you. Perfect. No, thank you for uh, thank you for agreeing to join us. So. What we'll do is we'll do a little bit of an introduction with yourself, Matt, and run over the details of JNS Subsea and their remit. And then we've got a very interesting topic lined up, which we will delve into later. But if you can first kind of introduce yourself and let everyone know your kind of background and then also the remit of JNS Subsea. Okay, where to begin? Um, I joined the original JS in 2007. Uh, we were bought by SEA in 2015, just before the downturn, uh, which was a bit of good timing on our part. And we were part of that organization for five years and their main remit is in the defense industry. And it became clear that they weren't really paying us the attention that we felt we deserved. And so we had the opportunity to do a management buyout. Uh, This was all happening pre-COVID and then COVID came along and uh, we all got a bit jittery about it. But uh, the the team fundamentally believed in what we were doing. And uh, once we saw what COVID was really going to be all about, um, that the world wasn't going to come to an end, we decided that uh, we wanted to go ahead with it. So we completed the deal in September 2020, uh, late September 2020. And we've just completed our first full year of trading. I've given myself the grand title of chairman because uh, there is actually an executive team uh, led by Phil Reid and they are running the business day to day. The business is moving on, we're developing further and they're the people who are really going to take it on to the next stage. Fantastic. So where would you say that JNS Subsea's focus is now? Goodness, there's a question. Uh, we've just been doing all our strategy stuff and um, it's really just uh, there's so many opportunities out there just now, you know, there's challenges, but there are opportunities. If I, if I wind the clock back to what we did when I joined the company, the our typical client was a, a very busy and very pressurized controls or subsea engineer working directly for one of the oil companies. And we found that by, to use the old cliche, sharing their pain and giving them what they wanted when they wanted, that they were actually appreciative of what we're doing. So we could see there was a gap in the market and it was very much around that late life asset support. So OPEX budgets around uh, subsea uh, controls assets. And we started off with a couple of clients and that's developed over the years that we've now got a, a good range of clients, mainly directly to the oil companies. More recently, since uh, the downturn, uh, the whole industry has looked at its supply chain an awful lot more critically. And with some of the more wider global issues around uh, global warming and uh, your carbon levels, some of the opportunities around uh, energy transition and net zero, um, we're really seeing that there's uh, things around that. Uh, Way, way back, we actually got involved with EMEC, providing some of the export connectors for the high voltage uh, wave and tidal devices there at EMEC. So we've got quite a bit of experience historically on marine renewables as well. Um, But it's fair to say the focus has been very much on the oil and gas business, but in common with the rest of the industry and the rest of the northeast of Scotland, there's very much a view to the the wider energy sector beyond this. 
Yeah, absolutely. And is JNS Subsea main focus region-wise in North Sea or is it expanded elsewhere? Um, we have been very much in Aberdeen for the North Sea uh, with occasional uh, providing e equipment and people to international uh, jobs on a very much ad hoc basis. But again, looking at the longer term strategy that we're seeing in the oil and gas, it, it has to be abroad uh, within the, 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 that part of the energy mix. And so we're already picked up some work in North Africa and uh, looking more strategically at North Africa and the Middle East as areas that we want to go to. Fantastic. Now, the, the, the talk about net zero and um, the transition actually leads us very nicely onto a topic which I am personally quite intrigued by, which is called the legacy locker. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an insight what this is, Matt? Okay. Um, yeah. So the 2015 downturn happened. Um, everything went quiet. A lot of companies did a lot of navel gazing. And we had to really look at what we were doing. And I, I basically, the idea, to wind it back a bit further, the idea of legacy wasn't really something that was talked about in this industry, but I had spent a bit of time working in the IT industry. And they had this concept of where you took new computers and tied them into the legacy equipment that was the uh, the old big mainframes that were working away in the, the, the basements of these big banks and uh, financial institutions that no one was wanted to touch because they were scared that they would fall to bits if they touched them. So that idea of legacy glue and legacy interfaces was something that I had from a, a previous experience of. And I could see there was strong parallels between what we did then and what was happening with uh, the work we were doing in the subsea controls market. So the idea of Legacy Locker was just a, a brand, if you like, a name around an idea of don't come to us and tell us how to solve the problem, come to us and tell us what the problem is and we'll try and help you solve it. Yes. Um, and at one level that is um, getting ready access to a shared pool of uh, equipment that uh, some of our clients share with us so we can lift the phone, do a borrow and replace uh, on equipment at very short notice. At another level it might be refurbishment, remanufacturing of kit uh, and at another level, again, it could be pure brokerage, but I'd, we tend to steer away from the brokerage because really we provide value add through the fact that we've got engineers and techs who can design, manufacture, test, go offshore and do installation support as well. So it's an idea around trying to pull the, um, the equipment uh, and get fast access. It, it started off really as being a responsive fast act action uh, for the oil companies um, and literally it can be days instead of months uh, I mean really it can um, uh, conventional supply chain some of the stuff could take um, up to six months if we can get our hands on it um, uh, doing this borrow and replace type idea with some of the clients then uh, we could be talking three or four days from wow. order to uh, assembly test and delivery um, that it, it doesn't take long. It's the it's the supply time that was the issue. Um, the the thing that's been interesting that's developed on from that though is that um, through this whole uh, transition piece, we started getting involved with Decom North Sea, and I get involved with some of the reuse working groups within Decom North Sea, and I was surprised at how little equipment is being reused and there was a wee bit about uh, um, if a lot of it falling in deaf ears at the time 
And it's taken the whole COP26 net zero energy transition debate to bring this much more to the forefront. And the oil companies are all listening to it more now. The OGA, uh, uh, the OGUK or OEUK, uh, as they are, is um, are, are talking about this now. DCOM North Sea are very active in that area as well. And so there's a whole other aspect that's developing now through Legacy Locker, which is that we're not only helping the clients by doing very fast turnaround and asset support, but we're also helping in that we're through remanufacturing, through reuse, that we're uh, cutting down the carbon footprint. Um, so we're, so we're actually benefiting both ways by cutting down the, the time cost and then also um, helping them reach their, their um, pretty ambitious targets of net zero and um, you know, uh, cutting down emissions. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. No, it's it, it's certainly a, a fantastic ethos. And and are you finding now that people are, are starting to pick up more? As you were saying, uh, since COP twenty six, people are starting to pick up more on this kind of ethos about reusing things. How would you recommend companies start putting this more at the forefront and and actually getting involved? Um. Hmm. Difficult one. <laughs> I'm having to choose my words carefully here. Um, I, I I think there has been a culture in the industry um, to to use a, a an old saying that I've uh, used over the years. Anyone who's had the had heard me talk at any of these things, there, there was an old thing that comes actually from the computing industry, and it was uh, no one ever get fired for buying an IBM. Um, and there is that thing about if you go back to the OEM, uh, then you went to the OEM and whatever happens next, you went to the OEM. Mm. So uh, there is a, a reluctance to go anywhere else. And if you look at other industries uh, and how the whole supply chain works and how equipment is designed for reuse and remanufacture, uh, our industry hasn't done that. And there's a whole other aspect about the history of why we got to where we got to and why we are where we are within this and when all that the technology was being developed in the, the 70s and 80s and the 90s. But we are where we are, but we could be doing more um, by changing that attitude. Uh, and actually specifically in reuse, and it's, 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 it's been an interesting journey within uh, the work we've done at DCOM North Sea because it's getting the, the whole oil company and supply chain, contract modelling, pricing, and I won't say attitude towards risk because there doesn't actually have to be risk in it if it's done properly, but it's actually getting the, the, the thinking to change that they're more willing to allow that equipment to be, um, uh, to be reused. Uh, to give you a <laughs> the risk of going on about this, but to give you a, a very quick example of it, um, at the moment, uh, if something is classified as waste, um, it has to go through a certain process. Uh, and that's fine, you know, that's the legislation, it's there to protect the environment, it's there to protect people and to protect companies' uh, reputations. But by giving it that classification, classification at a very early stage in the process, it puts it down a, a, a sort of channel, if you like, that is very difficult to get it back out. If there was a different view on the classification of material when it was getting towards decommissioning, then it would make it would open this up an awful lot more. It would make it easier to do. So uh, I think it's certainly with the oil companies and 
they are, there is a change in attitude. We're seeing it already, but it, it starts with them to open this up and make it more easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think when there's such things that you're putting forward with very little drawbacks, um, you know, quick mm -hmm. turnaround, cost effective and helping them meet targets, then it, it certainly doesn't really have you know a difficulty in saying that there, there's no other options in doing it. So it's an excellent initiative and hopefully we can start seeing it used more, um, especially around the North Sea. Thank you. Yeah. Perfect, Matt. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant to chat to you about GNS sub C and, of course, the, the legacy locker. Uh, we'll hopefully get a catch up again soon and we'll hopefully see where GNS sub C is in a year's time. Thank you. Uh, okay. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you so much, Matt. Cheers. Cheers.